0: story that we're told about the American theater or about theater in general is kind of trying to create an illusion of truth. And I think part of our work is trying to break through that illusion and kind of allow everybody to kind of see the truth of what was in in a new way.
1: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
2: And I am your other host, Isaac Butler.
1: Isaac. I need to know whose voice we just heard. But first, it feels like ages since we were on the show together.
2: I feel like it's been ages since I've done this show, weirdly.
1: (laughs) And I know in part that's because you've been traveling to some book events. And I'm just curious how that's going. I know this isn't your first book, exactly. But your first book was an oral history of angels in America. And you wrote it with a co-writer, our pal Dan Coyce. So I'm curious how this book is different.
2: Uh, yeah, it's really different. For mm-hmm. one thing, there's COVID. So I'm actually doing more book events than we did for the World Only Spins Forward, but very few of them are in person. And, mm-hmm. and I say yes to anything that comes over the transom. If someone wants to talk to me about the book, I'll do it. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I just want to get the word out. I, I enjoy talking to people about it. It's been a lot of fun. So I've been doing a lot of events, but most of them are over Zoom, except for this little West Coast tour mm-hmm. I just did to Portland and L.A. Yeah. But but the other thing is that when we did the in-person events for The World Only Spins Forward, they were these like really raucous book events much more raucous than normal because what we would do is you know it was an oral history so we'd get a group of people together local actors and writers and people we knew and uh we would force them to do staged readings of a chapter of the book but they wouldn't be given the script until right before they walked out on stage that was the joke um and so it just had this really great energy but you can't recreate that in a regular old book event i mean i try to bring a good energy to it and have good time but it's it's been a very different experience
1: yeah i went to one of those world only spins forward events and yes it was it was pretty super generous and and a lot of fun also all right well i'm very glad that your book is being well received as of course it should but we're here today for an interview about the creative process who did you talk to and whose voice did we hear at the top of the show
2: This week, I spoke with director Awoye Tempo and dramaturg Arminda Thomas, and they work together in an organization called The Classics, that's spelled with an X at the end, which is dedicated to rediscovering and celebrating the history of great African-American plays and performances. Uh, But they are also currently collaborating on a production of one of those shows that they've helped champion, Wedding Band, by the great writer Alice Childress.
1: I am so excited to hear this interview. But first, I believe you have an extra segment that is for Slate Plus members only. What will they hear?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. I think it's a really fun Slate Plus segment. Even our producer, Cameron Drews, was like, this is a good one. So <laughs> I used to be a child actor, and a Wedding Band has two roles for very young kids, like an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. And it's a show that deals with racism, racist violence, interracial romance, Jim Crow, you know, a lot of really grown-up stuff. So I wanted to learn about uh, what it's like to direct kids in a show that's dealing with really serious subject matter. It was a really fun talk.
1: Wow, that sounds amazing. And if I weren't already a member of Slate Plus, I would definitely sign up to hear that. Fortunately, it is incredibly easy to join. And as a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site. And let me tell you, the Slate site is pretty amazing right now. And member exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like The Culture Gabfest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Awoya Timpo and Arminda Thomas.
2: Awoye Tempo and Arminda Thomas, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working.
0: Thank you for having us. Hi. Hi, Isaac. It's
3: so nice to meet you and to be here.
2: So before we get to Wedding Band, your latest production, you have a long-standing collaboration as director and dramaturg. Could you tell us a bit about how that began?
0: Arminda and I worked on a project together, a great play by Nambi Kelly called Jazz. Um, And Arminda had been the dramaturg for that show. And so when I got brought on board, the playwright Nambi was like, oh yeah, well, we have our amazing dramaturg, Arminda, she's just incredible. She has all this beautiful information about Toni Morrison. She's great to work with. So I was already excited to get into the room with Arminda. And then we ended up in Marin, California, for about four to six weeks developing this play. And it was really beautiful. And I think we just we just really connected um, during that time.
2: Arminda, this is not a theater podcast, so I imagine some big chunk of our audience is like, dramaturg. What the heck is a dramaturg? And it turns out that it's often two very different jobs depending on whether you're working on a new play. Or an already existing play. So maybe we can start with what does a dramaturg do in a new play process?
3: I think of uh, dramaturgy as a kind of, people don't always love this, but I, I really think of it as a kind of midwifery. It's <laughs> a kind of, you know, just helping to determine what is necessary in a process to just help facilitate. Uh, the birth of the play. So sometimes that's research. For jazz, it was a deep dive into Toni Morrison, a lot of reading about the work that she had done, and then just thinking with uh, the playwright about the way she wanted to to transform that into, you know, her own perspective, her own vision of the piece, and, and the ways that those could vibe together, you know, and so that was, that was that process. And also the ways that, you know, elements could come in, you know, she was very interested in music, which in a piece called jazz, you would not be (laughs) surprised about, but, you know, just, just how those things, you know, could express themselves uh, fully. And so that was that process. And in terms of this process, it has involved a fantastic dive into the life and the work of Alice Childress also into South Carolina in 1918, and the world of the characters, the influenza epidemic of 1918, uh, laws against around marriage and divorce and miscegenation laws, and you know just all of the things that made up the world that that Childress was um, harkening back to, and then on top of that. You know, just working with Awoye and Jason and the other designers to think about how we want it to interpret that for now and make that, you know, why is this play written between 1966 and 1972 and, you know, set in 1918? How does it speak to us in 2022?
2: Mm fascinating uh awoye what works for you about this particular director dramaturg relationship because you know you get a bunch of directors together at a bar and they will start complaining about dramaturgs you know even before the first beer no. is finished. So, uh, I'm just, I'm, it's just a joke but there are there are bad director dramaturg relationships director dramaturg relationships that don't work out why is this one worked out so well what is it that makes you two such a great pair
0: I think the thing that we knew right away is that we were both really just committed to making the story clear, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we just communicated really well with each other. I mean, it's also just like, as you can tell, just a very fun, chill, down-to-earth person. (laughs) And also (laughs) has just the best intentions of the piece at heart. Right. But I think that now, the thing that really works is that we like to think about story together. We like to think about character mm-hmm. together. We like to think about what things mean to us now together. So it's really, um, it's just a beautiful partnership because we just get to like chat and think about story together. we just get to dream together about what the possibilities of a thing could be. Um, and so that's been really, really good.
2: So you two are also two of the core members of the organization, The Classics, with an X, if you're looking to Google it right now, which is dedicated to expanding the canon by rediscovering, celebrating, remounting great black plays, many of which have gone neglected and underproduced and undercovered. Can you tell us a bit about the organization beyond what I just said, you know, how it came to be and and what you all do and what you're working on right now?
0: Yes, yeah, sure, and I'll kick it off and then toss it to aminda. And I'll say it's really interesting because when we began, we were thinking about this notion of what it would what it does it mean to expand the canon. And I think that mm-hmm. what we've come to is actually a shift in how we're thinking and the language that we use to describe what the work is. So now what we think of is exploding the classical canon. And by that, we mean, you know, all of those words have such a history that actually needs so much re-examination re- and rethinking. So I think that classics, and we think of ourselves as a collective and it really feels actually like a think tank also as well. We're thinking about the idea of canon, what the evolution of that is, what are the things that have been excluded or celebrated within the idea of canon. Um, you know, we're, we're investigating terms and, you know, I think that when we started, we were really thinking about plays and thinking about what is a classic play. And the thing that I think evolved really beautifully is that now we're thinking much more broadly about, yes, plays by Black playwrights, but also Black performance history. So if you take uh, any individual play, and Isaac, you know this so, so well from all the research that you've done, there's the play itself, and then there's the people around the play that, help the play become what it is. It's like the play mm-hmm. is there. Some is sometimes a single event, but sometimes that play has 10 years of evolution. It has a community right. of people around the creation of a thing. Um, and that creation revolves around different political movements and other kind of ideological movements. There's so many things happening around the shaping of a play. So that's actually the thing that we're interested in. Yes. Black plays, but also Black performance history and the stories of, around how those plays got made.
2: Well, and there's so many fascinating people around those plays. I mean, you know, just to take one that I know is a shared uh, love of ours, Bill Gunn, right? The great, yes. the great Bill Gunn, who <laughs> makes a, a landmark experimental horror film and is a friend of Montgomery Clift's and all sorts of other things, then also has this career as a really fascinating writer and is a larger than life character in a lot of ways.
0: Exactly. Um, and so it's been really um, beautiful. And it's amazing, too, because, you know, we when we started, we were thinking about plays written before 1990. Um, so it's actually been really fascinating, too, to get to connect with people who were in conversation with these playwrights, who were in these playwrights' plays, the children of these playwrights, you know, and be in conversation with them and figure out how to tell their stories in addition to the stories of the plays.
2: Wow. So Arminda... How are or where are y'all finding these plays, right? So, like, what makes you decide this is the play or playwright we're gonna we're gonna focus on?
3: There are some playwrights I think that we came in knowing we wanted to explore. Mm. Um, we came in with Bill Gunn and we came in with Alice Childress. And I
2: mean, how could you I, not?
3: I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I I will say one of the first uh, conversations away and I had on the way to lunch, she said, Armando, what are you doing? What are you thinking about in your life? And I I said, I'm thinking about ways to see every Alice Childress play, you know, everywhere. Just how does that happen? And so that was that was obviously the right answer. Mm -hmm. So there are people that we came in thinking about. And then there were things like we started an investigation for a podcast that should be coming out soon on black minstrelsy and black performance in the era of minstrelsy, where we just took this deep, deep dive back to 1865 and beyond, and the plays that got shaped during that time and decided, oh, actually, wait, what we need to look at is into but there were, But we didn't start out going, this is a play we're going to look at. And there were plays that we might've picked had we been able to get our hands on them. That were not that there are some Cole and Johnson plays that we absolutely might have highlighted instead, you know. So sometimes it's we really want to talk about this era. We really want to talk about these communities that were kind of foundational that we don't really know enough about. And so you know, uh, the Walker and Williams Company, the Cole and Johnson Companies, the Smart Set, all of these groups that kind of grew the higher sisters. All of these groups that kind of came up out of you know post Civil War and and slightly beyond that, and that's how we ended up on that play, which is which is featured in the podcast.
2: Fascinating, you know. There's many of these neglected works uh, by black writers. They're not currently performed, but they do have some life in like college and grad school syllabi, right? Like Take a Giant Step or Wine in the Wilderness, Day of Absence, Ohio State Murders. You know, there are certain plays that sort of, you know, one might read as they wind their way through academia, but your mission is not focused on that. Your mission is focused on bringing them to the public and to theaters and getting them performed or at least thought about in that context. And how does that change how you approach this work?
0: You know, when we were first starting to think about what is classics, because you know, it started off actually as a reading series and we did four plays. And in thinking about what it meant to do those four plays, we also had to ask questions about, okay, Um, Take What the Wine Cellars Buy by Ron Milner, which is one of the plays that we included in the very first reading series. What are the kind of conditions that create a space that we most people do not encounter that play, right? And so we said, okay, well, let's see if we can do readings. That is kind of a compact way to introduce people to the work, and we can also kind of create some scholarship around the work at the same time. How do we connect with theaters and see if they can do productions of the plays? Um, how do we connect with schools and see how we can speak to them about what they're working on and how we can support that? And then there are some plays, as Arminda is saying, that we said, oh my gosh, I've heard of this play, but it's not in print. So what is the work maybe that we can do to publish some of these plays so that people can have access to them? So it's interesting. It's like it's it works on so many different um, levels. And then sometimes we just, as we're going with those kind of pillars, we just say, oh, this is the thing we're really excited about right now.
2: Mm. A lot of you know, how black theater often gets taught is there's like a raisin in the sun and then there's like maybe the Dutchman and then there's August Wilson, right? It's like, it's like, that's how we tend to teach it. Um, can, Can you talk a bit about challenging, maybe Arminda, can you speak a bit to about challenging that understanding? And, you know, as it turns into a much sort of thicker and more complicated tradition, how our thinking about these works can change and grow.
3: I think that one of the challenges that can be helpful, I mean, that I, there are now programs that really do have, you know, their black theater history class. And that's where you go. If you're interested in black theater history, here's this class. But the challenge- I took that
2: that class with Dominic Taylor at the University of Minnesota. So, yeah.
3: Right. It's a beautiful thing, right? Right. So you you get to know all these things. (laughs) But the challenge is how do you incorporate into the, here's your theater history 101 or whatever. Here's your arts history. Yeah. I remember that, you know, there's a dollop of Harlem Renaissance in your American history. I mean, so, so the deeper question is how do you incorporate, you know, how do you get people to understand in this, in this critical race theory questioning, you know, skepticism moment that black history is American history. Yeah. Especially, you well, Black American history is American history, and, and you don't need to divide it so separately. You don't need to have this, I mean, yes, have that Black American history class in, because you have that much material that's necessary for it. But don't compartmentalize American history with, you know, with all of the things that make American history so interesting out of it. Mm-hmm, right? Totally. The Federal Theater Project the Negro units of the theater, Federal Theater Project are right there, incorporate. It's not that difficult, I guess is what I'm saying, is it's mm-hmm. not that difficult to, when you're talking about the group theater, which you absolutely should talk about the group theater, you should also talk about the American Negro Theater. Yeah. Because, you know, because it's doing some of the same things and it has, and they certainly, members of the group theater were very connected to members of the American Negro Theater. So it's not, you know, it's it's expand your, your thoughts about, communities about theatrical communities and about what's going on. And then, you know, and then by the time you get to the black arts movement, you have a fairly coherent thread that's already started.
2: Right. Uh, You know, to speak to your point, Ruth McClendon, you know, performed with the group. She was in their very first play and she and, you know, Bobby Lewis were friends and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I just, I just think it's fascinating about how, like, you know, how we bring these threads together in a way that, that deepens our understanding of this, rich tradition that we're all inheritors of
0: i think that part of our work also you know is about breaking through the illusions of things right so Mm -hmm. we all come up with like in the story that we're told about the american theater or about theater in general is presented in a certain kind of way that's kind of trying to create an illusion of truth to what actually our theatrical history is. And I think part of our work is trying to break through that illusion and kind of allow everybody to kind of see the truth of what was in, in a new way, right? So it's like the plays, as you said, are there. The history is there. It's really partly about reframing and rewriting what we're understanding as what that theatrical history um,
1: is. Mm-hmm. We'll be back with more of Isis Conversation with Awoya Timpo and Arminda Thomas.
2: This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process, or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options.
1: Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or to share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Awoya Timpo and Arminda Thomas.
2: I want to transition a little bit because, in part because of your tireless advocacy, Alice Childress is really having a moment, at least in New York theatre right now, including your production of Wedding Bam, which is currently up. Before we get to Wedding Band*, can you just tell us, for people who don't know who she was, who Alice Childress was and and what makes her so special as a writer.
3: Well, Alice Childress was a performer and a playwright and a novelist and also a great essayist and gave a mean speech. She was an activist. Um, She was born in South Carolina in Charleston, but raised in Harlem, uh, raised mostly by her grandmother. She did not get to finish high school, but was an incredible thinker. And just, she once said, if, if you had a library card, you could do most of what school, you know, failed to do anyway. That's not a direct quote, but that's what she meant. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. And she, um, she started out her career, the flashy part of career with the American Negro Theater, uh, which was a group that also included uh, the likes of Ruby D and Sidney Poitier and Harry Balfonte and Clarice Taylor and a lot of people who some people who became very prominent nationally or, you know, at one point, And some people who were very instrumental in the development of, you know, further theater movements. So she started out with the American Negro Theater as a performer. She was in a play called Anna Lucasta, yep. where she was not the lead, but was a scene stealer and, and got a lot of press and acclaim wherever they went. They did a tour of it. It's, it launched on Broadway in 44 and toured for a couple, like through 46 and 47. They went throughout the country. And there was talk of turning it into a movie, but when they turned it into a movie first, they did it with Paulette Gardard. Oh. So, uh, anyway.
2: Right. And then shortly after that, she starts writing her own plays. So, let's talk about Wedding Band. Awoye, maybe you can tell us a bit about the plot of the play?
0: So, Wedding Band takes place in 1918 in Charleston, South Carolina. And it takes place in a kind of backyard community um, where um, the landlady's father has built these rent houses that all face into a backyard. And a woman named Julia Augustine, a Black woman, um, has just moved into this community. Um, and we come to find out that she's in an interracial marriage with a white man named Herman. And so the play follows them on their on their 10th anniversary. Um, and is really a play about um, this community and how this community is a part of Julia's ultimate kind of um, her process of self-discovery and liberation. And it's really beautiful because it really is the portrait of a community. It takes place in this backyard space, but you get all of these wonderful um, moments where the community of, of Charleston, South Carolina is integrated
2: into the play as well. Like the bell man.
0: The Bellman, yes. The guy who
2: sells uh, clothing out of a suitcase <laughs> on right. consignment. That's and, right. Yeah. Um, so what did you find as you have dug into this play, researched it? You know, you've been working on it for a long time. What were or remain maybe the major creative challenges of doing this play for you? When the
3: play came out in New York in 1972, it had been written 10 years before. Alice Children's first draft of Wedding Band was written completed in 1962. She had a reading of it in 1963. That reading went so well that it was optioned for Broadway and was supposed to be produced and presented in 1964. And then things fell apart because it was not developing in the way that made producers comfortable, that Julia and these women were more of a focal part of the play, the the other women in this community were more focused on than Herman and it was it's not a play that rests on Herman's decisions or you know there's not a hero standing in the middle I mean not just a white hero but a hero you know it's not that kind of play so plays that are focused primarily on women are challenging or have been challenging then but also by the time it was produced in 1972 in New York Uh, loving versus virginia had been decided. So there was the is this really relevant? Interracial marriage is legal now. Is this still a relevant thing?
2: Right. The Um, the original New York Times review of the production is like, I mean it's interesting, but maybe a little dated.
3: Right. And so if you it it can get easy to dismiss things if you can glom on to the oh well that's an issue we don't have anymore. So that's not the point. And then on the other side on opening night there was the allowed vocal protest by a man wearing a dashiki who was not happy that Julia was spending her time and her focus on this white man. Why are we writing a play about this? Why do we need this is, you know, we're firmly in the Black arts movement. We are firmly turned away from, you know, the notion of integration as something to be desired or pursued. We're not interested in you know, and how Herman might feel. We're not interested in his mom and his sister. We, you know, go talk about some people that we want to talk about. And so those were challenges in 1972. I think that we're all clear that interracial marriage being legalized did not change um, the difficulty of our relationships (laughs) with one another, right? Right. Um, And the thing that's compelling, I think, about this relationship is it's not a romance, right? It's it's not like a Romeo and Juliet. It's not star-crossed lovers. It's about people who are trying to be in a marriage. A marriage is a lot more work than a romance, right? A marriage is where you have to bring yourself and discover, I mean, and they're not married because they can't be married. Right? They consider themselves married, but they're not, you know? Uh, but marriage is about the real work, right? Of being yourself and, and, and the acknowledgement that in the ways that you fail your partner. And so I don't want to say that it's kind of more about allyship, but it is in a way that it becomes about how do you bring your best self to this person? And what are the things that stand in your way that are in you that you don't even realize? Because you are not just someone who is in love with this woman. You are also someone who has been raised in a very in a deeply anti-black society and you carry that with you in ways that you you know suppress and don't acknowledge and, and that affect your relationships and so I guess, you know, to me that 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 makes it kind of more timely
2: right now. It is fascinating to me how often Herman is like, don't say white woman, just say woman. Right. You, know, Herman <laughs> wants, you know, he's sort of the like colorblind post-racial thing, but in yes. 1918, right? Don't complain about white people, just complain about jerks. And she's like, right. no, they're white right. jerks. That's why it, right. like there's a whiteness that's specific to them being jerks.
3: Exactly. And that that becomes very important to them, a very a very big sticking point, in the ways that um, when we try to smooth things over for each other, <laughs> sometimes yeah. it becomes toxic.
2: Yes, which is true of all long standing romances, but has a specific valence when we're talking about an yes. interracial one. Yeah. Yes. You, absolutely. Uh- I can think of having just recently seen the revival of Trouble in Mind at Roundabout, that one of the real challenges of Childress's plays, I've read three of them, I haven't read all of them, but of the ones that I've read, is tone. Because on its face, her plays can seem very straightforward, but there is a real fascinating Undercurrent of comedic irony that seems to run through her work, and there's a weird way of like, if you overplay that, then it, it's not disturbing and like it doesn't affect us enough. But if you play it too sincerely, that's not right either. And I, I'm just wondering about finding the tone of Childress, which just seems to be very particular and very tricky. Uh, yeah, maybe you could talk about that about how you work to do that with the cast.
0: Yeah, sure. First of all, Alice Childress is a hilarious writer. Her work is so no. funny. It's just it's just like in very unexpected ways. Like her sense of humor is just so incredible. So I, I think that our, if I have to think of like the what the creative challenge, in a way it's been less a question of figuring out what the tone is and more a question of figuring out what all the different components of all the different worlds are, right? So there's the world inside of this um, community, inside of this backyard. There's the world of Herman and his family. There's the world of the bellman. There's the world of the young white girl who Maddie takes care of, you know? There's all these different worlds circling around each other, and it's really about how to let them all kind of collide with one another inside of this backyard space. Um, But what's been really beautiful is that, once we just let the moments be as true and honest as possible, we haven't had a, there hasn't, I don't think, necessarily been a question of figuring out the tone. We're also very lucky because. One of the resources that we had there's quite there's quite a few interviews with Alice Childress and there's quite a, a bit of writing that she's done about the play and one of the things that we were able to find which is I'm gonna found in the Ruby D papers was a letter that Alice Childress had written to Ruby D in 1966 when when Ruby D was thinking about being in the 1966 production in Michigan a wedding band. And she really maps out exactly what the tone, especially for the opening, could be. Because she said specifically, the first scene could be played for comedy when Maddie is looking for this quarter. But it should not be played for comedy because this is about a person who's losing the very last quarter that she has to her name. So in a way, we kind of had a little bit of a guidebook to help us navigate some of the moments, which was really beautiful. And I think sometimes you don't always get that, I think, um, with plays where the writer is not, you know, sitting right next to you in in the rehearsal room. So we had actually a great gift of a lot of um, words by Alice Childress to help us move through those moments.
2: I'm grinning right now because archival research is just like my favorite thing on earth. The like going through the boxes right. <laughs> and scanning the papers into your phone and sort of learning this new level of how the person's mind worked right. and what their voice really was is just it's the best. It's the best.
3: I'm laughing right now because right as you asked the question about tone, I went to my computer to try to pull up the letter.
2: Oh <laughs> and then
3: Awoye started talking about it. So Incredible. And that's why we work so well together. And I
0: should say, (laughs) too, that the the reason that we had even access to that letter, because I don't think, you know, you wouldn't Google Alice Childress and find that letter. Arminda used to be the archivist for Ruby D and Ossie Davis for nearly 20 years. And so she, and she can tell the story beautifully, but also she remembered reading the letter and putting it because she organized all of their papers for the Schomburg. So she remembered putting the letter into the folder. And so when it came time for us to do this now, she was able to say, oh, I remember there was this letter from Alice Childress to Ruby D," And that's what let us know that it was there.
3: I did not remember all the particulars, but I remember, you know, because, I mean, why archive anything? Why spend, you know, all these years in the basement if you're not going to read absolutely everything?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But um, but I remember reading it and going, not knowing the play, not really knowing the project, going, wow, that's pretty amazing. Just the depth, the thought that had gone that she had taken this time to write in this kind of way. I, I hadn't seen a letter like that, really. Um, I hadn't seen a playwright really give that kind of time to a prospective actor (laughs) in the play. So I was really, I was fascinated. So it came to mind
2: immediately. And it's also just such a great example of bringing your full self to the work. You know, you just never know how something, you know, for me, it's being an office temp in my 20s. I was not uh, lucky enough to be archiving the collection of two geniuses. But, you know, you bring yourself to the to the work. And if you bring your full self to the work, interesting stuff happens.
3: I was also an office temp in my 20s. Yeah. Yes.
2: All right. Amazing. (laughs) Awoye Tempo and Arminda Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Working.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Isaac.
1: Always love to hear your interviews with denizens of the theatre world, because I just learned so much. But um, one little thing, before we get to the meat and potatoes, I have a small question. At one point, Arminda talked about working with Awoye and Jason on Wedding Band. Who is Jason?
2: Yes, Jason is scenic designer Jason Ardisona West. And uh, yeah, he did the set for Wedding Band. And the set for that show is really important. It absolutely has to foreground the feeling of community that they were talking about. You know, it's multiple small rental houses that are all next door to each other in the backyard of a larger house. And so that feeling of everyone being on top of each other and in each other's
1: business is really vital to the plays action. Aha. So first, that story about Arminda remembering a letter from Alice Childress from her time being the archivist for Ruby D and Ossie Davis. It's like mind-blowing. It's so satisfying too because A, what an amazing artifact to have access to. Incredible, right? You can invent anything better. But also... It's a researcher's dream, right, that you're looking through boxes and boxes of stuff and you find an absolute diamond in time to make use of it. Like, did you have any similar experiences when you were researching the method? Uh, how long do you got, June? <laughs> I got <can hold> all <laughs> day
2: because there were there were tons of them, and just so that you know, Cameron doesn't have to edit this down too much, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll I'll highlight a few things. Archival research is actually one of my favorite parts of the research process. You know that panning for gold, mm. the little nuggets that come up, even the stuff you don't use helps you understand the subject matter or the people and their kind of interior monologue in, in a much better way. For Angels in America, the best archival find. Uh, was the two screenplays that Tony Kushner wrote during the short period of time that Robert Altman was going to make oh, a movie God. of Angels in America. And it's his attempt Ooh. to make it into a movie that Robert Altman would make that might have like, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Tim Robbins in Whoa. it. And so it's a very peculiar, fascinating uh, uh, script for the method. There were tons of them. Um going to the Library of Congress and finding, I actually quote from them extensively, the letters that Marlon Brando and Jessica Tandy sent each other after the opening of Streetcar Named Desire, where he tries to apologize for his behavior and she really gives him what for. <laughs> uh, that was pure gold. Another one was, you know, there's a, a major character in my book is this guy named Richard Boleslavsky, who's sort of the first teacher of Stanislavsky's ideas in the United States. And there's this Guy, who's now deceased, uh, who was a professor at the University of Scranton, and he um, is the author of the only English language biography of Boley, and he donated all of his papers to the university. So it's everything from his electric bills to interviews with Harold Klerman and Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg. And so those interviews were incredibly, incredibly useful. And I learned a lot both about their teaching and about what it was like to study with Boley. He also had from his brief period as a theater director in the like early 1980s, the headshots of Alec Baldwin and Bruce Willis at the very beginning of their career just stashed away in a pile of papers. So that was another find that obviously was not relevant to the book, but still made me very happy.
1: I bet. Wow. And again, the item that Arminda recalled and then found a letter from Childress to Ruby D, mapping out exactly how she saw the main character and how the role should be played. I mean, that absolutely brings a deceased writer into the room. Uh, In this case, it feels hugely useful and important. But I'm always curious what happens when a director or maybe and or a dramaturg want to do things differently from the way a living writer who's present at the rehearsal process sees things. Has that ever happened to you?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, disagreement is part of the collaborative process. You know, you, you can't make something you care about with other people who also care about it and never disagree. If you do, there's probably something wrong, actually, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um I think that if you're working on the very first production of a new play with the writer involved, you have to be somewhat deferential to their vision, actually. Mm. It's really the first time out of the gate you're trying to do right by what they kind of see and what they've written. And then subsequent productions, you can start to, you know, meddle with it a little bit. You need to do the play, the playwright wrote. But, you know... At the same time, though, again, it is a collaboration. You're working together to birth something. And that Mm. thing you're working together to make is actually bigger than any of you, including the writer. Um, And so in those moments of disagreement, what I find is most helpful is to try to set aside all of our egos and just stay focused on the production that we're creating. What are its needs? What are its desires? Mm. What does the community that it's speaking to need? And, And also, you know... What have the people we've collected together for this production actually capable of doing? Because, you know, the writer might have a vision for the character, but the actor whose cast is not really going to be able to do that. So you have to find something else, you know, or it might require, you know, you might not have enough money to do it the way that it's sort of envisioned. And so you have to figure out some creative solution. And so when you ask those kinds of questions, one that are really about what's best for the play as opposed to what I want or I see, I think good things really come out of that. But if for some reason it comes to a my way or the highway moment, I'm going to defer to the writer if it's the first production.
1: Wow. I tell you, man, theater is so weird. And it's a miracle that we have plays produced on the regular. It's a
2: miracle that anything gets done. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. OK. I'm absolutely fascinated by Aoye's description of the challenges the creative team faced in producing Wedding Band. That, yes, of course, it's important that this play be mounted, but it's also crucial to contextualise the work. you got to remind contemporary audiences what was going on when it was written or first performed. And in this case, there's you know more than a decade between those two dates. That's really important, obviously. There's no argument there, but it's also really hard. Like, I'm writing a history book now, and I know I can't say anything as basic like, hey, back then it was really important to know where to find people because there were no cell phones or online search engines. Like, I know I can't say anything as crass as that, but I also want people to appreciate it. Um, I'm curious how you've seen that kind of message communicated well and I'm sure much more subtly than the dumb version I just suggested.
2: That's funny. You know, I think of one moment in my own book where um, Marlon Brando's agent is trying to get a hold of him, but he doesn't have a phone. And so he just has to tell people like, hey, if you run into Marlon, tell him to call me. Yeah, Yeah. And, you know, I think that if you could find those moments to dramatize oh, this person doesn't have a search engine, so they need to know where people are. Like, if you can find moments to dramatize it, then you don't have to explain it. Uh, But also, when it comes to theater, like, look, June we've all seen plays that feel like museum pieces. You know, you go to see a play and it's almost like you're literally standing in front of a diorama of the Natural <laughs> History Museum and there's that thick plate of glass between them and, I don't know, Teddy Roosevelt's behind you or something. <laughs> and No one wants that. Yeah, And, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to avoid that. But one of them is just to go to the truth of the situation and the characters. Like, okay, interracial marriage is legal, right? Yeah. But human struggles against poverty against white supremacy when you love someone your community doesn't approve of Mm -hmm. you know there's all those kind of situations still exist and you can tap into the truth of that and find the vitality and it'll have a living emotional core and that is what's going to make it feel alive i feel like a lot of times when we're doing period pieces in theater you know the solution is well let's just get rid of anything that looks like it's too oldie, timey Let's get rid of those period corsets and dresses. And, and, you know, that's a perfectly valid strategy, but doing that is not actually going to make it feel more alive or in the present day, really. That's not really what it's about. It's really about finding the emotional truth and making sure that that, that is still being played, that I think the feeling of vitality is going to come from.
1: Yeah, for real. One of the things we've talked about in past episodes when we've had guests from the world of theatre is just how hard it is to get shows produced because of the commercial imperatives. And, you know, when Oye was talking about just the challenges, like maybe these, first of all, you have to find these plays, you know, <laughs> many of them are out of print and are just all of those challenges. Um, but since you mentioned in the conversation that academia is often a place where certain black plays are encountered, I'm reminded how in Britain, a certain kind of play gets put on over and over again because they are set plays, as as the term goes, for the exams that are such a big part of the British educational system. So school groups make up, I would imagine, a pretty big chunk of the audience for productions of certain kinds of plays. And there just isn't an equivalent of that in the US, right?
2: Yeah, sadly, there really isn't. I mean, I would say that's a side effect of something in the British educational system that sounds like anathema to me, which is, you know, the the importance of these exams that determine your entire life's journey. Uh, But that's a positive side effect. Uh, um, There are certain plays that get done a lot because people read them in school and they're familiar with them, right? Death of a Salesman, Raisin Mm -hmm. in the Sun, uh, some Shakespeare's. Streetcar Named Desire etc but there's no sense of a body of work that everyone has to know and because everyone has to know them we're going to produce them pretty regularly Um, I actually think about this all the time like I grew up going to the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. I was actually a subscriber. I saw, you know, every play at the Shakespeare Theater from when I was 12 until when I was 18. And most of the time, these are very good, very straightforward productions of Shakespeare where regardless of what period it's set in, the emphasis is squarely on entertaining and telling the story clearly. It's kind of Shakespeare 101. And people sometimes or often kind of look down at that kind of thing because, you know, well, we're so sophisticated, but I keep thinking about it. Like where is someone supposed to see their first production of Hamlet? I understand that, you know, when you see your 12th production of Hamlet, you want someone to come to it and do something new and break it apart and, you know, make it postmodern and do weird shit with it, But like, where is actually someone today living in New York City going to see their first Hamlet, their first Othello, their first three sisters, you know, yeah. um, if we're only deconstructing and we're only doing, you know, kind of postmodern versions of things, how is anyone younger than 40 who grew up watching these plays supposed to understand what these productions are even responding to? Like that that's a thing that I keep thinking about now, because I really feel like I had the benefit of of a good but, you know, somewhat conservative yeah. institution uh, that really provided me with that groundwork, that that foundation, so that you can then rebel against it later.
1: Yeah, you know, what you're saying reminds me somewhat of the way opera is produced. Um, right. I used to subscribe to the Seattle Opera, and Seattle Opera is a great, or certainly was when I lived there, a great opera company. Uh, you know, it's a Wagnerian house, so that's something that's kind of their bread and butter. But if you're an opera company, there are certain productions that you have to do. You've got to do a Carmen. You've got to, you know, you've got to do the popular repertoire. Right. And that can subsidize maybe some postmodern shit or some um, uh, you know, a contemporary opera, a modern opera, but you've got to do the thing that people actually want to see. So yeah, uh, that that seems very uh very relevant. <laughs> I have what might be a dumb question. So you mentioned in the conversation that you had read three of Alice Childress's plays. Again, in Britain, it's common when you go to the theatre for the text of the play um, to be available for purchase. And I rarely see that in the States. So where do you get hold of copies of plays so that you can read them? And do you have any tips for how to read a play? Should you do the voices in your head? Should you read it aloud? Or just any tips? Well, in this particular
2: case, Alice Childress's plays are collected. The I think the collection was out of print and is now coming back. I, or there's a new edition of it mm. coming out. Something like that. It wasn't the easiest thing to find. But I actually read her play Wines in the Wilderness in school in mm. an anthology for a black theater class. Mm-hmm. I sought out Trouble in Mind because I had heard it was this kind of lost masterpiece, which indeed it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was mostly out of print at that point so I bought a used anthology called like Black Theater from the 70s and then Awoye sent me Wedding Band to read to prepare for the interview. Um, but in terms of buying the plays, the place to go to is of course the Drama Bookshop. Uh, if you're in New York City, you should go there in person. The staff know their shit. Uh, if you're not in New York City, you can buy them online at dramabookshop.com uh, and you can order pretty much any play that's in print from there. Now, There is the second question of how you read them. I am a big fan of reading them out loud to yourself. Even if you're just muttering them under your breath, you have to feel physically how the language really works. Mm. I find it sometimes helpful to do funny voices, even if the play is serious. (laughs) So you begin just to, just to understand what's going on with the language. I always read Shakespeare like it's John Cleese or something, you know, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, in Monty Python. But, um, you know when there's stage directions, the tendency at first is going to be to skip them, but you know try to slow down, try mm-hmm. to read them, try to visualize them. There are editions of plays published by same French and Dramatist Play Service that are really for production. You know you can see they're bound in kind of cheap paper. Yeah. They're really meant to be used in rehearsal. Try not to get those actually mm-hmm. uh, if you can. If there's another more bookish edition, get that one because it'll just be much easier to read. And also those editions often have stage directions that are derived from the stage manager's notes from the first production, not not actually the ones written by the author. So if you can get the, I mean, they're more expensive. You can also get them <laughs> from the library. The nicer editions, those are actually uh, uh, easier to read. But when you get to a stage direction, slow down, try to visualize it. See if you can sort of see the production in your head. And other than that, I just think play reading is really a thing that gets easier the more you do it. The more you read plays, the easier it is to read them. The less weird they seem. And so <laughs> yeah. there's no time like the present to really get cracking.
1: Yeah, I, of course, I'm transported back to the beginning of the pandemic when for a short period when everybody really was kind of in lockdown, the, a group of slatesters would get together and read plays and you and Dan Coyce were very central to organizing yeah. that. And it was, it was such great fun.
2: It was it, a lot of fun. We read Arcadia. Remember we read yeah, Arcadia, Arcadia in read We did Good Night Desdemona, Good Morning yeah. Juliet. It was, yeah. it was great. Yeah. And yeah. then there was another group of people that I was part of that were reading uh, screenplays. We read the screenplay oh. to Michael Clayton. We read the screenplay <laughs> to Galaxy Quest, you know, it
1: was a, it was oh, a good goodness. time. Wow. Well, okay. One final question where can listeners who get to this episode soon after it was first published go to see the production that the three of you were just discussing? Where is it and how long does it run?
2: Okay, so it runs at Theatre for a New Audience. Their website is tafana, It's not running for that much longer. It closes next weekend, May 15th. It's in uh, Brooklyn at the Polanski Shakespeare Centre in Fort Greene, uh, which is a lovely, lovely, beautiful space. Um, it's got a really, really great cast. Uh, so you got one week left to see it. If you're listening to this on the day it airs, and I highly recommend you get tickets and go.
1: Get going, people.
2: Is that your Is that your cowboy accent? Was that Was that like get along little <laughs> come along doggies. little doggy get along, along little doggies to the theater? <laughs> no.
1: It's all go. someday
2: we should do an episode where I try to do it in English accent, you try to do it in American accent. Yeah, that would be
1: a disaster. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts. You'll get extra episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you will never once hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
2: Thank you to Awoye Timpo and our Minda Thomas and to our scrumptious producer Cameron Drews. Additional production help was provided by Kevin Bendis. Thanks, Kevin. We'll be back next week with Karen Hahn's conversation with actor and voiceover artist Erica Ishii. Until then, get back to work.